I have a goal today in the Spirit to convince you why we must pray. I could have titled this sermon, Why We Get to Pray, Why It's an Honor to Pray, but I believe it's an imperative for us. Why we must pray. There is... There are a lot of things in our life that we think we must do. A lot of your life is directed by what you want to do. There are certain things that you do. There's the schedule that you make because there are certain things you want to do and so you will do those things and it doesn't really take a lot of convincing for you to do those things. But then there are things you do because you believe you must do them. One of the best examples of that is work, career, going to a job. You may may enjoy your job, but ultimately what is driving you there is I must go, I must provide, I must have finances. So our lives are driven by the things that we believe we must do, and so my word to you today, what I want in the Spirit to convince you of is that we must pray. Individually as believers, this is what we are called to. We are called to pray. And and anything that that comes before us, whether it's time or what we feel like is a lack of ability or understanding what to pray or it's just hard. All of those things are usually true. Our lives are busy. Schedules are full. Prayer is not always easy. But none of that changes this. We must pray. We've been called to pray. I want you to be convinced of that this morning. And I also want to say this corporately, agape, we must pray. And what I mean by that is I've been here for a long time, probably get tired of hearing me say that, but 20 years in August we have been in this church. And I have been a leader here for the majority of that time. And I am convinced It is God's mandate to this church that we pray. And when I say that, what I I mean is there are certain ways that God works in Christians' lives, right? So he, He knows His children. He doesn't parent all of His children the same way. Looking at God and saying that's not fair doesn't work with Him. He knows what we need. So He doesn't always parent us the same. You remember that whole picture of, I think it was John and... And Peter, where Jesus gives Peter a hard word about how his life is going to go, and Peter immediately turns and points to John and says, what about him? And Jesus essentially says, why does that matter? You follow me. So God knows how to parent His children, and He knows how to lead His individual churches. Jesus doesn't shepherd every local church the same. So what one church does in its mission and gets to do And how God works in that church isn't exactly the same in in every church. Obviously, there are general principles that we're called to and things that we should do that is 
across every church, but there are certain specific ways that He leads churches. And in this church, I am telling you, we must pray. Take a moment and look around. Do you have any desire to see those empty seats filled? It will happen one way and one way only if you pray. That's it. Do you see people here? Do you see missing faces? Do you see missing? Do you see these empty seats and you realize these missing faces? And some people are traveling and things like that, but are they sick? Are they troubled? Are they struggling? Is something going on in their life? Do you care about that? Do you want to see that overcome? It will happen one way if you pray. What aspirations, what dreams, what goals would you have for the church that you're a part of? I would submit to you that you should have those. We are a body. We care about the body of Christ here. What are those goals? What are those things that you hope to see? It will happen here one way if we pray. And I'm not, I'm not making this picture for us that we're just going to sit and pray and there's no other labor, there's no other actions. I'm going to show you in just a moment that I believe when we are a house of prayer that leads us to many different actions and fruitfulness, fruitful behavior. But being a house of prayer has been a consistent vision, a consistent theme that has carried across multiple leaders of this church. It is what God has called us to, and we will rise or we will fall based on whether or not we pursue that vision. So I say to you today, Agape, we must pray. And this morning we're kicking off a month of prayer. 21 22 days of praying. And we're going to talk about that this morning and what that's going to look like. But I want you to know at the beginning that the the goal isn't just, okay, let's pray together as a church for three weeks and then we can say we had our month of prayer and then we'll come back around to it next year. If we do that, we've, we have failed. The point of what we're doing in a month of prayer is for some of us to ignite us into this vision of being a house of prayer, for some of us to reignite us into that vision of being a house of prayer. But the idea is that what we do over the next three weeks carries over into the life of this church in October and November and December and all the way into next year. And perhaps some of you would even come and say, I love that. I love that we're praying corporately. Why Why do we not do that more throughout the year? And the response from the leadership should be, you're exactly right. Why do we not do that more throughout the year? So let's do it more. So it's not just about the next three weeks. It's about the life of the church. My prayer this morning is to be able, by the Spirit, to convince us we must pray. So Jesus, I ask this morning that You would allow me in Your grace to preach in the Spirit, to unfold Your Word in the Spirit, to exhort and encourage and teach in the Spirit. I pray that You would help us to hear by the Spirit. If people are they listen just to 
my words and this is all an act of humanity, then even if it stirs someone, it will only be for a moment. Jesus, we labor in vain unless you build the house. So as we talk about being a house of prayer, I ask that you would build a house of prayer here. And that our labor in that would be effective by your spirit, your anointing, and your power. So Jesus, make us men and women and children of prayer. If we see ourselves as a person who prays in your spirit by you, if we have those times where it is fruitful and good and powerful, give us more of those experiences. If we see ourselves this morning as a person who struggles to pray, ignite our hearts to it. Give us passion for you and your kingdom and abiding in prayer. Let us become convinced that we must do this, not begrudgingly, but with joy. God, if we are moved by temporal things that we must do, let us all the more be moved by the eternal and supernatural things that we must do as your people. Make agape a house of prayer, Father. And give us the joy of being a part of that. Protect us from the enemy that would snatch your word away before it bears fruit. I ask that the word today would plant in people's hearts, would be watered, and would bear much fruit today and in the future. In your name I ask these things, Jesus. Amen. I want to start this morning talking about a house of prayer. What does that mean? Hopefully you've heard us say that. Hopefully you've seen us lay out at times that vision. It is something we value as leaders. It's something that we say this church must value to be a house of prayer. I'm not going to define that for you this morning. I'm not going to say here's a definition of a house of prayer. Here's what I want to do. I want to point to a few attributes that I believe will exist within a house of prayer. I collaborated with Sam on, on these. So these, these are a list that we put together. By no means is, are these five things exhaustive. Like These are the only five things you will see in a house of prayer. But I want to, you to use these as a guide, both today and in the future, asking, okay, are we, is Agape becoming a house of prayer? Are we growing in this? Is this us? Okay, well, I want you to look for these attributes. Do you see them in our church? Not only do you see them, but do you see us growing in them? So I gave a blank there. What do I mean by growing? In my mind, I mean three things. One, maturing. Like, yes, we're just growing up in this idea of being a house of prayer. We are growing up in these attributes. The ones I'm about to lay out to you. We're growing up. We're maturing in these things. Secondly, that we're being consistent in them. That when you look at these attributes that would identify a house of prayer, you can see there's consistency. You know, it's not just something that happens one time every now and then. No, I see this consistent attribute in our church. And then the third thing I thought about was power or fruitfulness in these attributes. Effectiveness. That God is working in us and through us in these things. And so I believe that if we see these in our church and we can see that we are maturing in them, becoming more consistent in them, seeing fruitfulness and power in them, then it's an indication to us that indeed we are growing as a house of prayer. 
which should encourage our hearts to say, okay, now we go more, we go deeper, we keep going. God is doing this among us. And I do believe He is doing it among us. And I hope you see it as well. What are these five attributes, five characteristics that I would point out to you this morning as a being a house of prayer? One, growing in reliance on Jesus. Growing, maturing, being more consistent, becoming more powerful in our reliance on Christ. Relying on Him for everything. I try to say that all the time to us. Everything. So John 15 is a passage that we refer to so often about abiding in Christ. But two verses in John 15 I want to remind you of. Jesus' words, first of all, He gives us this declaration, I'm the vine, you're the branches. We talked about this during our community series. Whoever abides in Me, remains in Me, stays close to Me, and I in Him, that is the person that will bear much fruit. Because apart from Me, you can do nothing. So abiding with Christ is a it is a mandate for us if we want to be fruitful in what we do, and I hope that you do. I hope you want to bear fruit in the things God has given you to do. In being a spouse or a parent or a child or having this career to glorify Christ or serving in your church, I hope you would look at that and say, I want to bear fruit in these things. I don't want to just do them. I want to be good at them. I want, I want to be effective. And Jesus says, well, then you abide with me. Because if you don't, then you, you can do nothing. It's going to be a frustrating venture on your part. But then, look at verse 7. He says, if you abide in me, if you do this that I just said, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He, he shows us that a natural response to abiding is prayer. If you're abiding, you will be praying. If you are staying close to Jesus and you are in His Word that is all about Him, the Word that became flesh, and that Word is, is getting into your soul and your mind, a natural response is you're going to pray. You're going to talk to Jesus. You're going to communicate with Him. You're going to mutter over this Word to Him, not in a not in a disgruntled way, but in a meditation. That's what the word meditate means, to mutter. Speak it to yourself. You're going to think it out loud. You're going to ask Him for the things that you see. It's a natural response of abiding. And a church that's becoming a house of prayer, they're going to mature in that. They're going to be consistent in that. Individually, we are to be individual houses of prayer and then come together corporately as a house of prayer. So you're going to see this in your life. Power in it, growing in reliance on Jesus. Pray about everything. Pray about everything. It's a silly antidote, but uh, I was playing disc golf with Sam on Thursday. And we were doing really good. And then we got to this one hole and he tosses his disc in the creek. And then I toss my disc in the creek not to make him feel good. It was just we both did it. So now we're in the creek trying to find these discs. We're searching for disc, okay? This is not world-changing stuff. We're just looking for these discs, and we are searching, and we can't find them. And I think, well, I should just I should pray we find them. 
And then I thought, maybe I should tell Sam, let's stop and pray. And I was like, ah, I mean, what if the worship leader of our church and one of my fellow pastors finds it weird that I want to pray for these discs? I won't do that. I'll just pray silently. So I prayed silently. God, help us find these discs. Within three minutes, we found both of them. So I stopped and I said to Sam, hey, I just want to call out the fact that I prayed about this because I want to give God the glory that we found these. And Sam said, that is great. And he said, I guess I didn't have enough faith to pray. And I said, well, I didn't have enough faith to tell you I was praying. Does Jesus care about lost disc for disc golf? I don't really know the answer to that question. Other than to say, I think parents are concerned about what their children are concerned about. So I think in that way He cares. But here's what I know He cares about. Us relying on Him for everything. To where, yes, we stop and pray for things that people might look at and say, that's silly, but our hearts are so geared to dependence upon Him that it's just natural. We pray about everything. So that is something that we would grow in, mature in, become consistent in. And then secondly, grow in expectant intercession. A house of prayer. People who are becoming houses of prayer, a church becoming a house of prayer will grow, will mature, will become consistent and powerful in intercession. In James chapter 5, verses that you're probably familiar with, James says, is there anybody in your church who is sick? Then they should call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And a prayer of faith, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. But then in verse 16, it says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So he goes from this, if you are sick, the leadership has a responsibility and you have a responsibility. You should go to your leaders and ask them to pray for you. And then they should pray for you. And if the Lord grants specifically this prayer of faith, there will be healing that will come. But then he transitioned it to, this isn't just leaders and the congregation. This is the whole congregation. The lifestyle of the church should be you confess to one another your sins, your troubles, your struggles, the things that are hampering and hindering you. Physical illness, but also spiritual illness. Confess those things and then pray for one another, expecting that you may be healed. So I say to you, we should intercede for one another and we should do it expectantly. We should grow in praying for one another and we should grow in the expectation that God ordains prayer as a means of healing and help. So when we pray, when we intercede for one another, we expect God to move. Maybe not in the exact timing that we hope. Maybe not always in the exact way that we hope. But we always expect He is listening. We're not just throwing up random things and maybe one of them will catch His attention. Maybe maybe one of them He'll listen to. Maybe, maybe one of them will stick. No. We expect Jesus hears us when we pray. And He moves. And a house of prayer grows in sincere worship. Psalm 
Sam pointed this one out specifically to me. A house of prayer, a church growing, maturing, becoming consistent and powerful in being a house of prayer, there will be sincere worship. What does worship and prayer have to do with one another? Psalm 42.8 connects them. The psalmist is he's lamenting over his soul being cast down. He may have been depressed, distressed. He's speaking to himself. He's encouraging himself in the Lord. And he says, by the day the Lord commands steadfast love for me. I know the Lord has not left me. His love is there for me. And at night He gives me a song. And it's just a picture of around the clock, the presence of God. His song is with me. And then he defines what the song is. Or he describes the song, a prayer to the God of my life. There you see a connection between singing gospel-centered hymns and songs and prayer. And in the psalm, literally, the song is the prayer. Many of the psalms, they were that. They were songs put to music. Many of them are prayers. A house of prayer grows in sincere worship because, and I'm defining worship, I'm limiting it there to singing, although we know that it is, it is more generally defined as our whole life being offered to God. But there is a sense in Scripture in which worship is singing and praise. And a church that's growing as a house of prayer sees that. In other words, the songs in our gathering are not the opening act to warm up for the sermon. They are not the thing that's kind of optional, and if we miss that, that's fine, because as long as I hear the sermon, I've been to church. The songs are prayers. We may not treat them as such, but we must, in our minds, we must say, I want to gather with the church. I want to be ready, because when we start singing, we are praying. These words, sometimes they they are songs where we are asking God to do something. Sometimes they are songs in which we are declaring who God is and we are offering Him praise. And those are forms of prayer. And a house of prayer is becoming consistent and powerful and maturing in the songs that we sing and worship. A house of prayer is growing in holiness. A house of prayer grows in holiness. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first eight verses deal with prayer. And in verse 8, Paul writes, I desire in every place men should pray. And obviously by Scripture we know men, women, children, everyone praying. He says that. That's the desire. That's the aim. We must pray. We desire in every place people are praying. And how are they praying? He says, lifting Holy hands. Now, lifting of hands is a posture of prayer in Scripture. Often Jesus would pray that way. He would lift His face to the Lord. We're used to, we kind of do this, and it's appropriate. You see that in the Scriptures, but you also see this, the lifting of your face and the lifting of hands. Praying, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So He says, there should be prayer in the church where we're not sinning out of our anger, where we're not divided and quarreling with one another. Holiness is an important part of praying. 
And as a matter of fact, if you back up to the beginning of chapter 2, you will see that the whole thing is about prayer leading to evangelism. Because Paul says, I urge in the church supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all people. So he's calling for prayer. He says, I'm calling for this that we may lead peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified lives in every way. This is good. It's pleasing to God. Who desires all people to be saved? So Paul is calling for prayer in the church as an important part of evangelism and seeing people come to know Christ, and the kind of prayer that he is calling for involves holiness. Growing in holiness. We are made holy in Christ by our faith in Him, but there's also a sense in which our hands still get dirty from the the sins, the stains of this world, we confess to God, we seek repentance that we might grow in holiness, that we might become more like Jesus and less of ourselves. Christ may increase in us and we may decrease. And sometimes that involves fasting and putting things away and aside that would hinder us. So a characteristic of a house of prayer is that we're going to grow in holiness. And Paul shows here holiness and praying in holiness has an effect on your prayers, including for people to be saved, which brings us to our last characteristic of a house of prayer is we should grow, be growing in zeal for, and this is choose your own adventure. You can write in that blank souls. You can write in that blank mission. You can write in that blank salvations. The point is, a house of prayer is growing in its zeal to see souls saved, to see the church doing its mission to see people coming to know Christ. In Luke 10, 2, Jesus says to His disciples, and I would say He still says this to His disciples today, the harvest is plentiful, the harvest of souls, but laborers are few. The issue according to Jesus is not a lack of the harvest. The lack is the laborers to go work the harvest and see people be saved. So what does He say? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. It's really interesting there. Jesus doesn't say, there's a vast harvest of people to be saved. Pray they're saved. He also there doesn't say, there's a vast number of people to be saved. Go and try to save them. In this text, he says, start by praying earnestly that God will send out laborers. That people will be saved. And obviously, I think we know that if we pray for those things ourselves, like we will be convicted of our own need to be those laborers. Go back to what I asked you earlier. Do you want to see people saved? Do you want to see the church growing in salvation? Yes, there are people all around you to be concerned about. You may be the laborer 
that God has sent. But spend time praying, not just for your labor, but pray that the people of Agape would be the laborers sent into the harvest. Pray for everybody in the church to be that people, the laborers that are growing out, going out and seeing people saved. So, I believe those are characteristics. Just a few of a house of prayer. Are we becoming a house of prayer? Is God doing that among us? Are we maturing, becoming consistent, powerful in reliance on Jesus and intercession, expectant intercession, sincere worship, growing in holiness, growing in zeal for salvation? I think we are, but there's far more to be done. Pray. Pray, pray, we must pray that we become this house of prayer. And that is why we are entering into a month of prayer. We've been doing this every year since 2017. This, we're kicking it off today through the 24th of September. Primary focus for us is we are asking you, and I'm going to tell you this morning, pulling the curtain back a little bit, my prayer My belief is the people that God gathered here today are the people that He intends to be the core group leading out in this month of prayer. So by virtue of you being here this morning, in the sovereignty of God, I think you've been signed up as a leader for this month of prayer. I'm not saying that the people outside of this group this morning are not called to pray. I believe they are. But I believe that by virtue of being here and being a part of this, my prayer is that there would be a special anointing on you for this month of prayer. Every day, between now and the 24th, there is a psalm for you to meditate on. All the church meditating on the same psalm. Reading it. Even singing it. There's a song. We're using music by... I think it's called Corner Room Music, I believe is the name of it. Where they literally sing the psalms. Like You will see, if you go and listen to the song, it is just the psalm being sung, put to music. And, and the easiest way for you to get to this is if you have our church app, if you will go to the church app, there's a button on the front that says Prayer Guide, on front page, on the home button of the prayer app. And there's a little button that says, I think, prayer guide or 2023 prayer guide, something like that. You'll find it. You're smart people. So you just click on that button and it's going to take you to our website where Rusty has put together a very mobile friendly version where you just click every day and you will see the the psalm and you will see the song and a link to the song. If you you can go to the website, you can go under there's there's a button on the front page of the website. You can get to it that way if you forget. If you are just not an electronic person and you need a paper copy, get with me and I will email you a paper copy of the prayer guide. Here's what I'm asking of you. Every day, read that song. Every day, listen to that song, that psalm being sung. And every day, pray through that song. Now, there is a prayer focus that a leader in the church has written. So use that as a starter and pray for your church. 
But I want you to go deeper than that. I want you to let the Lord lead you through that psalm, how to pray for your family and how to pray for agape. Let the Spirit of God through that psalm lead you in how to pray. And I want you to write those things down. To that degree, on the back table, we have these prayer journals. They're not really pretty to look at, but if you're a creative person, they are easy to customize. You can get out your markers and crayons and colored pencils and pens and whatever you want, and you can, you can make it fancy. All right? But I want you to record in this journal what the Lord has you pray for your church every day. Record that. Write that down so that you will remember it later so you can share it with others in the church. Write down what He is leading you to pray for for the people of Agape. One day you may pull this out next year or two years from now and remember what He led you to pray for and you will see it in our midst and it will be a great encouragement to you. And I want to call you to fast. Something. And the best and, and simplest way I can explain that is, what is something that you love that the Lord would have you lay aside for the next three weeks in order to pursue Christ who you love more? So maybe it is fasting sleep. Maybe it is fasting a, a food. Maybe it is fasting media but what would the Lord have you lay aside that you might pursue Christ more during this time of prayer? To seek Him out as your first love. So we're meditating on Scripture, we're praying through it, singing, listening to it every day, we're fasting, laying aside, laying things aside that... that that we should pray. Excuse me, we're laying things aside that we might pray more. My pastoral encouragement to you this morning is to make a plan and stick with it. If you do not make a plan, this will not happen. There is a sense in which you must discipline yourself. And I would encourage you to share that plan with someone and ask them to help you in accountability for that plan. Here is the prayer that we've had as leaders. That there would be buy-in. That this church would buy into this month of prayer. The goals that we have is that these routines that you establish in this next month would carry over when the month is over. That they wouldn't just be routines for the next three weeks, but they would be a routine that would continue, that this would either ignite in you passion for abiding with Jesus or reignite it in you if that is something that you have kind of stepped away from, and that the church would be built up. That God would hear and answer these prayers that we pray this month. That He would hear and answer these prayers and that the church would be built up by the things that we pray, especially those of you who are here this morning who are our leaders this month as we pray. Now, I want to give to you, because we are in Colossians, and I'm down to 
about 15 minutes, but I want to give you some certainties that will compel us this month to pray from Colossians chapter 2 and the text that we are in this morning, which is verses 9 through 15. This text, I believe, gives us certain assurances, certain realities, certain things that we could say, here is why I should pray. Because of what I see true about my life and about the Christian faith. And not only that, but I believe these certainties that we see in Colossians chapter 2 actually help us set aside our reluctance and our fears. So here's Colossians 2, verses 9 through 15, if you want to look in your worship guide or if you have a Bible to follow along. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. Now how is what is being written there in Colossians 2, how does this help us to pray? And again, there are certain things, certainties that we are given in that text that should speak to our life and compel us to pray and speak to our fears about praying. Number one, the nearness of God. The nearness of God. Verse 9, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That, by the way, is present tense. Right now, Jesus is in His resurrected body. When He was resurrected, He did not become disembodied upon His ascension. Philippians tells us one day we will be resurrected and we will have glorious bodies, bodies that are glorified that are like His. Not like His will one day be, but like His is right now. So we can't see Him physically, but Jesus is in His resurrected body. And within that body is God because He is God. And He calls you to abide with Him And though you can't see Him, He is near you. And Jesus calls you to abide with Him like a friend you're having lunch with that you can see. He is that real. You can only believe this in faith, agape. But He is. He is just as near to you as the person sitting right next to you right now. And all of the Godhead is in Christ. He is God. And therefore, when Jesus says, abide with me, abide with me, and my words will be in you because I'm going to speak to you, and you can ask me of anything you will ask out of that abiding, and it will be done for you. Why pray? Does He hear you? Yes. 
Let this speak to your fear, your reluctance, your thoughts that maybe He doesn't hear. He seems so far away. No, all of the deity dwells in Christ and He is near you when you call out to Him in faith. So should not the nearness of Christ compel you to pray? If Jesus is right here, if He is in you, you can't ignore Him. You must pray. The nearness of God compels us to pray. Secondly, the influence of the Spirit compels us to pray. Verse 9 says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, the first part says, And you have been filled in Him. The mystery of the Gospel that Colossians talks about is Christ in you. So Jesus is not just near you, He is in you. You have been filled by Him, by His Spirit. How does that help you? Because many of us will say, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. The Spirit of God is in you. Listen to Him. Remember Colossians 2? Verses 3. Verse 3 talks about the mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The knowledge you need for what to pray is in Jesus. And Jesus is in you. That's amazing, mysterious, but real. You cannot say, I don't know what to pray. Ask Him. Sam started off this year compelling the worship team, compelling people around him who would listen. I think God wants to speak to us this year. He gave all of the worship team notebooks to write down the things that God would speak. The issue is not that God isn't speaking. Sometimes the issue for us is we're not taking the time to listen. We have filled our lives with so many must-dos other than prayer. You will know what to pray if you ask Christ what you should pray and be in His Word. The influence of the Spirit compels you to pray. And then, number three, the authority of Jesus compels you to pray. Verse 10b, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled with, you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is the head of every authority, every throne, every ruler. Ephesians 6 tells us some of those rulers and authorities are evil. Some of them, there is a spiritual realm and they're very real. Spiritual danger, spiritual attack. Some people might say, I am afraid to pray. What if I open myself up to spiritual attack? What if I open myself up as a target to the enemy if I pray? And here's what the Bible says. Jesus is the head of those authorities. He has rule over them. He has rule over you. They cannot touch you without His permission. Your protection is not to shrink back from prayer. Your protection is to abide with Jesus. They have no authority over Him. There's a very, there's a very kind of odd picture in Acts chapter 19. If you want to read a good story this afternoon, read Acts 19 verses 11 through 20 on the sons of Sceva. 
But I'll give you the the quick. What do you call those when you read the not the book, but you read the uh, cliff notes? God is doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, and including he's rebuking evil spirits, delivering people from demon possession. So there's this group of Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of a high priest named Sceva, and basically they they said, "Well, I want to do that. That." <laughs> I want to. I want to. I want to do what he's doing. So they go up to this man that has these evil spirits, and they try to cast out the demon by the name of Jesus. The problem was they weren't believers. They didn't believe in the name of Jesus. And so, if you read the story, it doesn't go real well for them. But the very interesting passage to me is verse fifteen, where the evil spirit answers them when they try to cast the demon out of the man. And the evil spirit says, Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. Who are you? The demon says, I know Jesus. And the word and the language that is used there is, I know Him, I know His authority, I know His power, I tremble at Him. And I recognize Paul as belonging to Jesus. I don't know who you are. And I don't listen to you. And what I want to say to you this morning is not, listen, we don't rebuke evil spirits. Even you get to Jude, I believe, it talks about that that the, the, the highest of the angels didn't rebuke Satan and demons, but he would... He would leave that to Jesus to do. Jesus is the one who has the authority to do those things. But when Christ is in you, and you are in Christ, the name of Jesus being over your life and in your life, that means power. That does mean authority. Not that it is of you, but that it is of Christ in you. And the fact that we as believers have the Spirit of God in us and the head of all rule and authority in us, yes, we should pray. Do you see evil in the world? Do you see trouble in the world? Yes, we can grumble. We can, we can fight. We can argue. We can get mad. We can post on social media. We can do all those things. Probably won't make any difference at all. But Christ is in you. And you have that authority in you. Pray. Pray. We must pray. This compels us to pray. The authority of Christ. Then the identity of the believer. Number four. The identity. Who you are. And we're going to do these two together. The identity of the believer and the power of faith compels you to pray. The identity of the believer and the power of faith should compel you to pray. So look at these three verses. In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What does that mean? Just remember in the Old Testament, the sign that you were a child of God, belonged to the people of God, was physical circumcision. A cutting away the physical part of the body identified that person and their family as a 
member of God's family. And so that is circumcision that happened in the Old Testament, but it was always intended to point to a circumcision of the heart in the New Testament where there's a cutting away that happens in the New Testament, but it's not a physical cutting away of flesh, but it's actually a cutting away of fleshly desires. And Galatians 5.24 talks about those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its desires. So there's a spiritual circumcision that happens in your life when you come to faith in Christ. There is a severing, a cutting away of the power of sin in your life. And Paul here calls it the body of flesh, is fleshly desires. And that circumcision happened, look at verse 11, without hands. This is not a physical circumcision. This is a spiritual one. It happened without hands. When did it happen? He identifies when you were buried with Christ in baptism and you were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. So He is identifying your salvation. In the Bible, you are saved and you are baptized. And again, baptism is not what saves you because He identifies here that you're saved through faith in the powerful working of God. But your salvation is meaningful. It is a picture. It identifies you with Christ. Like Christ was buried, you're buried in the water. As Christ was raised to new life, your salvation, you are raised out of the water and it signifies new life in Jesus. All of this has taken place because you have faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Remember Romans 10.9. If you believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord and God has raised Him from the dead. You confess that with your mouth, you will be saved. How does this inform our prayers? Well, because if this has happened for you, this is your identity, this is who you are, you're a Christ follower, then Ephesians chapter 3, which we'll get to soon, excuse me, Colossians, we're in Colossians, not Ephesians. Colossians 3, which we'll get to soon, says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. If this identity has happened to you, if you have been saved through faith, signified in baptism, You've been spiritually circumcised. Your heart is no longer enslaved to sin. That power has been severed. So now what? Now, you, if you've been raised with Christ in baptism, signifying that you've been saved, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things above. Is that not prayer? Do we not do that in prayer? The very identity of a Christ follower is you must pray. Why does Paul say set your mind on those things? Because you will be tempted by this world and pulled by this world to set your mind on anything but Jesus. To let your mind become enthralled with created things. And Paul says if you have been raised, if that's your identity, set your mind on Jesus and the very power of faith, if, if faith has risen you from spiritual death 
Is there anything that faith cannot do in your life? Or better said, that Jesus will not do through the faith that is in you. If it is faith in you that has raised you from spiritual death, will not faith, will that not, that faith that is acting in you, will it not continue to be powerful? Everything that you could ask God to do in your life is a lesser miracle than you being raised from spiritual death. So if being raised from spiritual death happened by powerful faith, then yes, whatever you long for, hope for, whatever you're asking Christ for as you abide with Him, that faith that is in you to ask Him has power to resurrect and restore and help. I hope you see that. And then finally, the certainty that compels us to praise the forgiveness of our sins. Do you not sometimes feel unworthy to pray? Do you not sometimes, surely I'm not the only one who, who, who thinks, I want to pray, but oh man, I remember that sin that I struggled with last night or yesterday or that person that I'm in disagreement with or this thing that happened. And then it just kind of puts us in this place of, ah, it's condemnation, I, feel, I don't feel like I can pray right now. Remind yourself, God has made you alive with Christ having forgiven your trespasses. Verse 13. How did He do that? He canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities that would have you sin and that would tempt you to sin. Those rulers and authorities tried to put Christ to shame without clothing on a cross publicly. And what happened Jesus died and He was raised to new life and now He has put them to shame. They shamed Christ temporarily for a few minutes. He has shamed them for all of eternity. You have been forgiven. Should you confess your sins? Absolutely. Should you repent of your sins? Absolutely. But you should never feel unworthy to pray. If God is laying something on your heart, to pray about and repent of, don't ignore that. Don't go to God and say, yeah, 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 but I want to talk about this. <laughs> Deal with what God is saying, but never feel unworthy to pray. The record of your debt, if you could, we've already preached this, so, but if you could imagine the book that holds every sin that you've ever committed, everything you've ever done, every thought you've ever had. It's a big book. It's in micro print for me. And what happened? It's been set aside. Forgiven. How? Because He nailed it to the cross as if Christ had it in His hand when He was nailed. You are forgiven. So you are in Christ worthy to pray. Agape, we must pray. This church must be a house of prayer. And this month we have an opportunity to ignite or reignite in us abiding in Christ.
probably odd to say after all of that, but the goal, the end goal isn't prayer. The end goal is abiding. It's being with Jesus. But prayer is the means He has ordained. We must pray. We must be a house of prayer. And we have all of these promises of the Bible that compel us to pray and speak to our fears about praying. And if God has called us to it, He will help us.